been looking um, at this from different angles. The first thing we saw um, was that the church is universal, that it's international, that it breaks down boundaries and ethnicities and language barriers, um, that it exists all over the Roman Empire in Paul's day, and that uh, the church over there and the church here have enough in common to fall under the larger umbrella, the church. And so we talked about that global reality. It's important for us to recognize both what we owe to Christians in other places, because let's just recognize that as Paul is writing this, uh, he, is, he is writing from Ephesus on the other side of the world, and yet here we are because of people who left churches like that and planted churches in other places and so on. It's also helpful to recognize um, that we have this extended family all over the world, and like we saw in Paul's collection for the saints in Jerusalem, we should care about the difficulties that they're going through. We should care um, about <coughs> the hardships that they face, and we should invest proactively and practically in loving the church at large. But we also saw last week that although the church is international and universal, it's not just one giant um, organization or one giant family that it's expressed in every location locally, what we call the local church. And we saw that, um, that that's part and parcel with the plan of God, that he doesn't just uh, set up a, um, a membership role that's accessible on the World Wide Web of Christianity and you just log your name and now, now you have your full benefits as a member in the body of Christ. Um, we, we saw that even in Jesus' method of starting the church, he began in close relationship in one place, right? Within, within 100 miles of the town he was born. He never left that area, um, and he had a relational ministry. And every time the church has broken those boundaries, it's gone as somebody has gone and invited people to form a new local church. But there's one other thing we see in this chapter in just the closing verses, and this has to do with drawing the right boundaries. Um, when I first became a Christian, it was right between my junior and senior year of high school. And so, as you can imagine, my life was kind of already in gear. The church that I was saved into, I was very close to, but I had about a year's time with them, and then I was headed off to college. I moved out of Yakima, where I was born, or excuse me, where I grew up, um, and into Ellensburg um, to go to college there. And as some of you have probably experienced, when you're a new Christian, uh, you recognize the importance, the need, the value of church. And so I was searching for a church. And um, I'm not like normal people, so I can tell you to this day that while I was living in Ellensburg, there were 13 evangelical churches, and I went to all of them. Uh, and my experiences were, were really interesting. I had grown up in a big Baptist church, so I was familiar with one type of Christianity, with one church. In fact, I hadn't been in another Baptist church. I'd just been in the one. Uh, one time I visited a four-square church when I was in high school, and then I got saved in a Calvary chapel like the church we're in. But when I was in Ellensburg, I attended churches of all sorts, across all sorts of boundaries, none of which I knew anything about. So there was the Sunday, I went to a four-square church and brought my non-Christian roommates. And while the pastor was preaching, a woman stood up and began speaking in tongues. And I remember thinking to myself, today, of all days, 
And there was the small uh, church of Christ that was 20 people that didn't have a pastor that just shared and rotated teaching responsibilities. And they were so excited to have me because I was the first person to visit their church in quite a while that they had me pray over communion the second week I came. And that might not seem striking to you, but just recognize that the average age of this congregation was in their 50s. And I looked pretty interesting in my college days. My primary form of jewelry was safety pins. Um, and so it was a striking, striking introduction to this broader love of the church. I remember visiting a small non-denominational non uh, church out in the countryside. And I went in, and it, it was kind of business as usual. It was probably the closest expression of church to the church I'd come from in Yakima. They were working right through the book of James. Um, but what was striking was an occasion where the pastor said, now let's take a moment and greet those around you, which happens in lots of churches. But then he left the stage, and he didn't return to it for 15 minutes. And to this day, this, this church ranks the highest on me actually meeting more people on a single sunny, Sunday than any other church. Then there was the, the church that was a um, Missionary Alliance church. It was the largest church I visited while I was there. And the way that I visited it was specifically through a college service. It was a college town, and so the college service was about 1,200 people. And there it was, you know, college students doing all of the orchestration and the leadership. There was a Johnny Cash song to open the night, um, you know, and I had all these different experiences of church. Um, as I grew as a Christian, I started to see things that I didn't see during that time. The majority of what I experienced there were the basic simplicities of what the church does. There was the word, there was worship, there was fellowship. <coughs> it wasn't until years later that I started to reflect on that and see some of the more profound differences. Like I assumed that when I visited the Church of Christ, they sang a cappella from a hymnal because nobody knew how to play guitar. It turns out they believe in the regulative principle, and so they believe that uh, instruments are out of place in Christian worship. And I started to recognize uh, that what happened in that Foursquare Church was not that surprising, was actually business as usual in a Foursquare Sunday. Um, all of these aspects came later, and... Uh, like many Christians, you know, the Bible compares the Christian growth cycle to a life cycle. And so you're born in Jesus Christ, you're immature, you're fed with milk, and you need to learn meat, these types of things. Maturity is one of the uh, explanations of Christian growth. And so that means that many of us as Christians go through the teenage years, uh, which are not good years to be around. Um, and so I became very dogmatic in my understanding of why we do things the way we do things as opposed to the crazy way you guys do things. Uh, I, I started to keep distance from those people and even have, you know, the, I'll, I'll call them prayer ulcers, right, where something's going on in the church at large that just makes you sick to your stomach. I had all of those manifestations, and so um, <coughs> what I want to talk about this morning is, is how we go about drawing the right boundaries okay we've talked about the fact that the church is universal and the fact that the church is local and that already by definition is a boundary issue it's recognizing that the church is more than us just gathered right here the church is more than us just gathered under the banner of calvary chapel or under the banner of non-denominational the church is more than just the label protestant or the label evangelical 
But as we'll see in the passage this morning, that universal aspect doesn't leave us as a, as a land without boundaries or borders. <coughs> Let's read the passage together and you'll see what I'm talking about. We're going to pick up in verse 19 and read through the end of the book here, just, just um, five verses. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you. In Christ Jesus, amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, like many truths, there are ditches on both sides of a narrow road that we can fall into. And so I pray, Lord, that you teach us about the identity of the church at large and why there is an inside and an outside, and to be careful to not swiftly and quickly divide the body of Christ, and yet to still recognize the value um, and the necessity and the obvious reality of the fact that there is a church and there is not the church. I pray that you'd help us with this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you noticed while we were reading, but there's a whole lot of love in these verses. It's everywhere. Everybody's greeting one another, right? It's, it's constant. In fact, it's, it's hilarious to me that in, the, in, the, uh, in verse 20 it says, all the brothers, and the word there for brothers is, is actually the, um, it comes from the word for family love, like Philadelphia, brotherly love. It's that word for brothers. It's bigger than just brothers, it's all the siblings would be a better way to put it. All the siblings uh, send you greetings. And then right before that, it says uh, the church in their house sends you hearty greetings. And the word for hearty there is many or a multitude of. Okay. So it's, it's just stressed throughout, it, throughout this. Um, even Paul, not only does he greet the church with his own hand. He's writing through a secretary, what they called an amanuensis, for this letter. And he says, oh, I want to sign my name myself and say my hellos. And so he writes the tail end of this letter on his own with his own hand. And then notice how he closes it. He says in verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So this is emphasized throughout and then dropped right in the middle of it is verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Does that seem strange? Does it seem out of place? Even, even if it's a right and proper truth, why here? Why now? You would think an organized mind would handle all of the love first and then the cursing or, or throw the cursing out and then do all of the blessing, but it's right in the middle. There's love before, there's love after, there's no love here. Okay. Why? You see, this is why I say that this passage is a good insight into drawing proper boundaries. And so first, I want to talk about... Um, inside the church and we can see even in verse 19 that that 
that that inside the church is relatively large. And so when it says here, the churches of Asia sends you greetings, remember here that we're in Acacia, we're near Greece. Um, when he says the churches of Asia, he's talking about Ephesus. He's talking about Colossae. And so here are two churches that have never met. Here are two churches uh, that have never read a, a doctrinal statement. What they share in relationship is two things. Paul planted both churches and Aquila and Priscilla, who came from the church in Corinth, working alongside Paul, are now living in and working in Ephesus. Okay, so they have this relational connection, but they have grounds for greeting. There's relationship here. And this is just, it, it, it sometimes seems so self-evident, but the thing about common sense is it's only good when we actually activate it. And the danger of common sense is it's so thoughtless that sometimes we don't realize we're not using it when we should. Um, and the, the recognition we need to make this morning, like I said, is that the church is bigger than us. That the, the boundaries are greater and that the, um, that the boundary that Paul draws here includes people of completely different walks, languages, ethnicities, whose expression of church has similarities and differences. Uh, and, <coughs> and here he calls for, he expects, he recognizes greetings. Let's build on the top of that. Here's Aquila and Priscilla, and they're people who used to go to the church in Corinth. This is a good illustration of what we're talking about. The fact that people have left our church doesn't make them no longer part of the church. And there's a thousand cases where you would all nod your head and say, sure. But it doesn't change the fact that sometimes we can uh, set sentries at the exit doors of our churches and then write people off as going, well, that's it. They're gone. You know, they're attending that church or these types of things. Uh, or see that as grounds or uh, a reason for the ending of relationship. James and Mallory are with us this morning. They fit this category. They left our church. They've been living in London, and I'm glad for them to, I'm glad to see them this, this morning. Um, but Aquila and Priscilla were like that. They were people who had worked alongside Paul in the ministry at Corinth and how had now left for Ephesus. Just think of the roster in your mind and think of the relational web in your own life of the church of people you've known, of other churches you've attended that are still there, uh, of people who have gone from this church to another church, of missionaries that churches you've been a part of have sent out into other places. That web is strong and needs to be maintained. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, all the brothers send you greetings. When he uses that word brothers, like I said, it, it comes from uh, the word, I mean, if you were to translate it word for word, lovers might be a better word, but specifically here, familial love. And so the family sends you greeting. See, even if we try and go, well, there's my church family and then there's the greater church, we're missing what Paul is talking about here. The, the thing that maintains the relationship within the church, what the church is, is a family. And a family means love. 
And so here he says, all the family sends you greetings from a distance across, you know, in this case, across a landmass, but also across an ocean. In fact, we could even add across history. In verse 21, when we read, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, it's a good recognition that Paul wrote this letter a long, long time ago. And yet he's part of the church. And so there's also this aspect of, uh, that sometimes falls into the idea of the church universal that recognizes that some of the church is no longer living on planet Earth. And yet we share a true and solid bond with this, these people, a familial bond. And so <coughs> what we're talking about here is love and what we're talking about is unity. And of course, both of those things need to be expressed in the local church. We should be a church of close, familial, loving relationships. When Paul is giving advice to Timothy, as he's working in the church of Ephesus, and Timothy's got a little bit of a hard job. He's a young guy, and he's coming to a church that predates him in its existence. And he's, he's got a role to do. He's to raise up elders. He's to operate as an authority until the church has an authority on their own. And while he's there, Paul gives him this advice. He says, do not rebuke older men, but respect them like fathers. Treat the older women like mothers. Treat the younger men like brothers and the younger sisters in, or the younger women in all purity as sisters. What is the metaphor that Paul reaches for to explain Timothy's relationship with the church? It's family. And to some degree, that familial bond is even closer than your biological family. There's an occasion where Jesus is ministering, and he's in a crowded house, and his mother and his brothers show up to take him home. They feel like he's lost his mind. They don't understand what's going on. They're worried about him. But they can't get into the house to even get a showing. And so somebody carries the message in and says, Rabbi, your family is outside. And they want to see you. And he says, this is my family. These are my brothers and sisters. For anyone who desires to do the will of God, these are my brothers and sisters. In fact, as much as the church can sometimes elevate the family as being the pinnacle of the expression of Christianity, there's a, it's an easy overlap between Christianity and what we sometimes call family values, right? Uh, Jesus constantly speaks negatively about the family. He says, unless you hate your father and your mother, your brother and sister, even your spouse, unless you hate them, in comparison to loving me, you cannot be my disciple. He tells the man who says, let me wait until my father passes and I bury him. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. You see, he's not making a distinction in saying family is an awful paradigm. He's making a distinction that there's something deeper here. And first and foremost, that means a relationship with him. He says, unless you, you love him truly and foremost and ultimately, then you can't love him at all. And that comes from the fact that Jesus is God. And so you can't have Jesus as a homie or even as a brother. You can't have Jesus as a near and dear close acquaintance or even as a deep friend you have to love him as a God and that means ultimate okay? but that love is so deep that the family that it forms around that centerpiece that focal point is thicker 
than family. Jesus calls the church, in fact, to be a family for the familyless. He says anyone who leaves their families and their houses and their homes will receive a hundred of hundredfold in the church and then eternal life. What is he saying? He's recognizing the fact that sometimes that boundary that we're talking about runs right between you and your parents, runs right between you and your siblings, runs right between you and your spouse. And that is not easy. And so within the church, we are to be a family that recognizes the depth of those relationships of brothers and sisters. And once again, it's not about love. It's obviously about unity. And that unity should be expressed right here in our church. We should be together, unified, of one mind. And if you read Paul's epistles written to specific local churches, you'll see that emphasis. But when Jesus talks about the church, and when he talks about the church, he talks about the church throughout history. He says, I'm not just praying in John chapter 17. I'm not just praying for these right here, but for all those who will believe in me. He paints with a broad brush and he prays that they would be one, Father, just as you and I are one. Unity. Unified. Okay, and so so this is emphasized uh, throughout. Now, here's something interesting. When he says all the brothers, like I said, he's drawing a word out of the love words. Paul generally uses one of those words consistently. It's the Greek word agape or agapeo. He uses it throughout. It doesn't matter if he's talking about God's love for us or our love for God or our love for one another. This is the only place where he uses phileo familial love. And not only does he use it here to talk about the beloved, the family members, the siblings, but when he says, if anyone does, has no love for the Lord, that's phileo, not agapeo. And so here, the emphasis for Paul is on this idea of family, of actual relationship. The Bible describes the gospel in one, uh, from one facet in terms of adoption. That God has not merely done something on our behalf. He's invited us into our family. Because Jesus didn't just die for you as an individual, but he died for his church. That means that you now have brothers and sisters. You're adopted into a new family with a bunch of other adopted kids who are now your new family. Okay? And so this emphasis runs throughout. And it's broader than we would like to think. You see, here's the thing. If we center our love or our unity around the wrong thing in the church, in the body of Christ, we will divide the body of Christ. If we say what gives us our unity and what what makes us a loving family is this particular aspect of doctrine, then we draw a line through the church. If we say it's the fact that we gather here and not there, the fact that we meet in a home and not a building, the fact that we are the one true faithful and everybody else has got problems, whatever it is, you're selecting a center and then you're inscribing a circle around it and anyone inside the circle is in, anyone outside the circle is out. There is only one center. 
that is big enough for the whole church. There's only one piece, an aspect of our unity, and that's Jesus. The Apostle John is concerned for false doctrine. He's concerned for doing things right. When he writes his letter to the, church, uh, to the churches in 1 John, he spends a lot of time drawing lines between truth and lies. He speaks very strongly and he says, if any of you say you are a liar, right? He speaks strongly. But listen to what he says. Listen here to what he says in chapter 5. This is how he opens chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. He says two things here. He says anyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. New birth, adoption. And he says anyone who's been born of God loves those others who have been born of God. Two things he makes the point here. He says, what is it to be a Christian? To believe in Jesus keeps it very simple, right? His doctrinal statement is a, is a single idea. Now, to be honest and to be clear, two things. One, this is not the only way he puts this in 1 John. If you go back and read in chapter 4, he's going to say, anyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's going to draw inference from there. And so don't be over-limiting. And second, when we read Jesus is the Messiah, you don't get to define those terms, Okay? And so if you reduce Jesus down to just the spirit of Messiah that's accessible to us today, and we too can be little messiahs, right? That's not what John means here. When he he says Jesus is the Messiah here, he means God incarnate, come in the flesh to live the life we could not live, to die the death that we deserve, and to freely offer us salvation on behalf of his work available and accessible to us just by believing and putting our trust in him. That's what this phrase means, but it's still tremendously narrow because right now we're trying to be precise. Right now we're trying to draw the pinpoint. You know how your compass has a pencil on one side and on the other it just has that really sharp point? That's where, that's where he anchors here. And then second, he says that center means that everyone in the circle is family. That center means this is where true unity comes from, and we must be unified. Now, another way we often seek to divide the body of Christ is because we recognize that the church is full of messes. Just think for a second. Listen to what Paul writes in verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Now, I just want you to recognize that the church in Corinth was not in a good place. That as we've talked about over and over as we've gone through this book, this is a letter of correction. Paul is not writing them to applaud their behavior. He's not writing them to deal with an issue about someone else. He says, hey, look, frankly, we got to talk because everything you're doing is insane. And he just walks through, and this is a letter of correction. It's a letter of rebuke. And maybe we do just right now need to recognize that rebuke is an expression of love, right? We live in a modern time where if somebody, uh, somebody confronts us, that's an unloving thing to do. And so we have to remember that the Bible sees a broader aspect of love. And so he can say, more faithful are the rebukes of a friend than the kisses of an enemy, right? It's not just 
about the expression and the feeling related. It's about the goal. And Paul's heart is for the church in Corinth. But nonetheless, he doesn't distance himself from those things. He doesn't draw a boundary between good Christians and bad Christians. He doesn't separate and go, hey, you guys need to come back inside the church. He knows a lot of what they're doing is wrong, is destructive, is, you know, corrupting their witness to the city of Corinth, is straying from the heart of the gospel, but he still recognizes that they are the church and that he is in a loving relationship with them. In fact, it goes deeper than that. Guys, the church in Corinth, in just a few years' time, is going to turn completely against Paul. They're going to deny his validity as an apostle. They're going to remove themselves by putting themselves up and above Paul. And those things are already starting to come in, in this letter. And yet love. You see, the primary way we live our lives is to draw lines of division relatively swiftly as a form of self-protection. And so we go, well, there's people who haven't hurt me, and there's people who have hurt me, and that's where the line is. And it's very easy to bring that mechanic into, into the church. It's very easy to say, okay, well, there's, there's those people who are clearly not Christians, who are, you know, we come up with our own assessments, and we draw the line, and we say, I owe them nothing. But Paul speaks honestly and fully and completely here, and it says, my love be with you all. Intriguingly enough here, he doesn't use phileo here, but agapeo. And sometimes we make an over-distinction in that word. Like when somebody says that agape always means sacrificial love, that's probably an overstatement. But agape is a love that doesn't require some sort of um, validation in the beloved, always. And so you can love an enemy, agapeo. It's a little bit weird to say you can phileo an enemy, right? but you can agapeo one. He uses that word here. But here's the point. We here in this church who identify as Christians, who align ourselves with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who believe in the Messiah, who believe in the Son of God, we need to be a family of tremendously close love. Look at how he expresses it in verse 19. He says, all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay. Now, this is one of four occasions in the New Testament that this idea of the holy kiss is mentioned. What is it? Let's just be a little self-evident, shall we? It's clearly a symbol of affection, is it not? Isn't that always what a kiss is? Now, when he adds the word holy here, that doesn't mean holy as opposed to, uh, you know, some sort of sensual kiss. He's not saying, hey, kiss everybody, but let's, let's keep it kosher. That's not the idea here, right? But what does he mean with a holy kiss? The word holy comes from the identity of God himself and the fact that, if I could use a pun, he is wholly different than anything else. He is God, everything else is not. He is above our ways as the heavens is above the earth. All of these ideas come into holiness. When Israel is building the temple and they have holy instruments, right? Those are the ones that are set apart only to be used in the temple. So it may be just like the spoon you have at home, but it is wholly different 
for a completely different purpose, and those things are not interchangeable. When Paul here adds holy as a modifier of the word kiss, he's recognizing the fact that this is a unique expression of affection. A holy kiss means a kiss without deception. It means a kiss that is uniquely close. (coughs) As I argued earlier, the church is not merely a type of family. It's the fullest and deepest expression of family. God is developing a new humanity, one without the division barriers and flaws that comes with fallen human nature. And we've all been grafted into that plan by joining the church. And when he says greet one another with a holy kiss, it doesn't mean less affection, like a kiss without tongue. It means more. It means a uniquely deep affection. I think it's very easy to read about the relationship that Jesus has with the disciples and be a little bit creeped out. Right? It's the Last Supper. John and the rest of them are total dummies. They have no idea what's coming down the pipe. They've tried to talk Jesus out of it. They've tried to spiritualize it. They're pretty sure that tomorrow he's going to be crowned instead of crucified, right? And it says that John is reclining on the chest of Jesus. That form of intimacy, that form of closeness, as an aside, that's what defines salvation. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you would know the Father and him who he has sent. Relationship, intimacy, closeness. Jesus wants the type of relationship where you can lean fully on him, not just because you have to because you're drowning, but because you get to because he's worth it. But that relationship is also to be expressed in the church. Love is not merely a Christian sentiment. It's one that has shoe leather. It's one that's lived out and acted out. And if you read the pages of the New Testament, you see a church that takes the needs of others as important as their own. You see a church that bears burdens equally and cooperatively because it's an us thing and not a a you thing. You see a church that goes in over the top completely and abundantly just out of love. And the reason, the reason is because we're all inside, because we're all under the same umbrella. The reason is because we've all been adopted into the family of God. The reason is because we share a destiny. The reason is because despite all of our differences in background, in preference, and personality, we have a laundry list of commonality. What Paul calls in Ephesians, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, we share those in common. We all share forgiveness in common. We've been grafted into the same body. We're all the temple filled with the Holy Spirit. All of those are grounds for unity to be expressed in love. And as a church, we need to proactively press into that all the time. In fact, when Jesus talks about unity in John 17, when he prays that the church will be one just as we are one, do you know the reason he gives, the so that, the purpose? so that the world may know that you sent me. 
the unity of the church is not just family matters. It's missional. It's an expression of the glory of the gospel. Our love for one another should make the world scratch their heads. It should fill them with a desire to be loved like that, to be a part of a family like that, to be a community of that. Nothing compels a person to come inside more than the warmth of the house. But we still have this statement in verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. Now, he uses two words there that are not Greek. They've been translated for you, but in certain translations, they'd be left the way they are. What he says here is, if anyone has no love for the Lord, anathema, maranatha. The first thing you have to recognize is that those two things are single statements, separate. He doesn't say anathema, maranatha is one statement. He says anathema, and then he can't help himself. He says maranatha afterwards. Anathema means to be set aside for destruction. Devoted to destruction. It's an incredibly strong word. Maranatha means come Lord. Come Lord Jesus. And we can find this same structure of these two ideas hand in hand in the book of Revelation. There, John writing doesn't use the word anathema or the word maranatha, but the principles are the same. Revelation chapter 22, the last page of your Bible proper before the maps. Now remember, this is, this is the tail end of the letter that follows this vision of a heavenly Jerusalem descending, of the eternal state that is to come, of salvation in the future tense. And it's a place where there's peace and no war. It's a place where there's light and no darkness. It's a place where there's love and unity and health and no hatred and no brokenness and no disease. And so he paints this picture, and then notice what he says in chapter 22, Uh, verse 10 and he said to me do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book for the time is near let the evil doer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy behold I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done I am the alpha the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life that they may enter the city gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And then notice what it says in verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Maranatha. Look at how the letter closes in verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. And John responds, amen, uh, or excuse me, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You see how all three elements that we saw are in place? We see this love and unity and destiny in heaven, but it's an inside and there is an outside. We see this longing for the coming of Jesus, and it's always helped me that John adds here, even still, well, actually, that's in another passage. Um, But in another place, he says, come, Lord Jesus. But there he says, even still, come, Lord Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I read the book of Revelation, I need that even still. 
okay? Revelation is not something we rub our hands over in expectation because finally all those jerks will get what's coming to them. He says even still because what's coming is awful, but it's also the return of Jesus Christ, but it's also these other things. And so we see the same balance of things. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells a parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who was throwing a wedding. And he went out and he sent invitations and people gave excuses. So the servants came back and they said, no one's coming. And he said, go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. Anyone you can find, this wedding will be filled. And at first glance, it's a recognition that here's Israel as a nation, God's people who were supposed to be expecting the Messiah, and they're rejecting Jesus. And yet people, even from the highways and hedges like ourselves, right, um, the homeless and the destitute, they're going to get entrance. But that's not where the parable ends. It says, and at the wedding, the king saw a man who had shown up not properly attired, not in wedding clothes. And he throws him out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says, you want to understand God's plan for humanity? It's like a wedding feast. But there's still an inside and an outside. Now, when John in Revelation here says, let those who are filthy be filthy still, that's not out of frustration or disgust. What he's probably trying to express is that when this all goes down, it's too late. Change your mind. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago that the return of Jesus Christ in the Bible is seen as imminent, meaning it could happen at any moment. What he expresses in this chapter about the coming of Jesus, he says it's going to divide the righteous today and the wicked today. It's too late for turning things around. It seems to be the same expression that Jesus is making for the ones who aren't properly clothed at the wedding. But here's the point. There's an inside and an outside. Now, going back to the book of Romans, don't misunderstand, or sorry, the book of 1 Corinthians, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here when he says, if anyone <coughs> has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Once again, that's not out of frustration. That's not how we as a church should feel about the world. It's a recognition of the reality of the state of the world. And here's how I know this. Because a book earlier in the book of Romans Paul talking about the Jews who have rejected Jesus, the same one that Jesus speaks that parable to, he says, I wish I myself could be accursed for their sake. He uses the same word, anathema. He says, I wish I could take their punishment and sentence upon myself. What Paul is recognizing here when he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, is simply this, that there is an inside and an outside. That by drawing a boundary around the church, there means there are those outside the church. And this brings us unavoidably in Revelation and 1 Corinthians into the ministry of Jesus. It brings us directly to the door of the reality of judgment, of hell and consequence and these types of things. And I know some of us, that makes us uncomfortable. And we think, well, that's the problem. You want to talk about what's wrong with the world, it's that you draw this boundary. And you say, we're outsiders and you're insiders, that's the problem. And we go, wouldn't it be more unifying just to base our unity and our love on the human reality as a whole? Universal manhood? And some have tried to uh, reduce 
the Christian teaching to just that, the universal fatherhood of God, that we're all God's children, and so, no, that's, that's not going to fit. There is no more universal expression of the availability of salvation than John 3.16. Would you agree? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But do you know what it says next in 17 and 18? I did not come to condemn the world, but so that through me the world might be saved. Those who do not believe in me are what? Condemned already. First off, if you're a Christian and you struggle with this idea, recognize, recognize that this is where we came from. That anathema is our birth state. That that's where we begin. That the life that we live and the line that's drawn is not between the good and the bad. It's between those grafted into the body of Christ and those still outside. If you want to understand who we are apart from Christ, read the first few verses of Ephesians 2. Be adamant, stop yourself in verse 3. Don't read into verse 4 where it says, but God. Go back and read it again. Meditate on that. If anything, this should compel us into greater love for God because this reminds us of the demonstration of God's love. You say, I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in judgment because I believe in a God of love. I'm sorry, but I think a lot of times when we say things like that, we mistake sentiment for love. What has a God like that ever paid to love you? You see, for us, the reality of hell is not just a consequence we see for everyone else. It's the measurement of the expression of the depth of God's love for us. It was while we were still sinners, while we were the enemies of God, while we were rebellion standing against him, fighting in a war against the living God, that he sent his son to do these things and invite us in. When we say, why do we have to have an inside and an outside? We're not actually removing the inside. We're denying the outside. We're stuck in a place where we say, hey, it's not fair that there's a single boat. If the whole world's drowning, then there should be no boats. Really? You see, Paul here, when he makes this distinction, he's not saying there's a wall between this and and there's the inside and the outside. No, there's definitely a door. And right now the door stands open. We should be compelling and calling people to come in through the door. The fact that there is an inside compels us to invite people in. Denying the outside just leaves them comfortably in their condition and says they'll be fine. As John is receiving this revelation, it makes the same distinction. Let him who is filthy be filthy still. Still, he says, and outside of this beautiful kingdom of heaven that is coming are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral. And he says, come, Lord Jesus. But that's not all he says. Listen, I read right through it, but you probably didn't notice. He also says this. 
He says, the spirit and the bride say, come. That should, be we- that should be us. We should long for the return of Jesus, for the consummation of all things, for the final fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven, for those things that still restrain us from love and unity to be completely destroyed. But notice what he says next. He says, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. What does he say? He says, this can be you too. If you're thirsty, come in because we have something truly that uh, refreshes. If you're cold, come in because inside there's warmth. If you're in danger, come in because here there is safety. Built right into this is not just a wall, but a door. Not just a division, but an invitation. When Jesus says, I am the door, he says something incredibly narrow. He says, there's an outside and an inside. And the only way in is through me. But it is also an invitation. It says there truly is an inside. There truly is. And it's, it's a place as we see here. Now do you understand why Jesus prays that we would be unified? Because it demonstrates that we're on the inside. It gives something compelling to invite people into. Does that mean that we only love the church? That we only love Christians? Of course not. Love should constantly overflow the boundaries of the church, overflow the relationships of your life, invite people into and express that love outward. But the glory of the church, the glory of the church is that we have been grafted in to the body and the blessings and the destiny of Christ. He says in the next verse at the end of Romans, grace be to you in Jesus Christ. That's the entry door, right? We don't stand here on our own pride. That's one of the reasons why we can't draw this line uh, wrongly and say, yeah, but I'm not the screwed up Christian or I don't have the messed up background or I'm not covered in tattoos or whatever it is, right? We can't draw those boundaries because we recognize our standing is solely and completely in the fact that we were outside and Jesus came and got us. And so we stand by grace. We invite people in by grace. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you don't get into the house by loving. You don't get into the house by some severe expression of unity or some demonstrative work that proves your worthiness to be inside. You get into the house through Jesus Christ, who, as we saw in this morning, became a man to live the life you haven't been living fact the life you cannot live to die the death that you deserve the paycheck for your life Paul says in Romans the wages of sin is death that's what you've earned with your life Jesus fully and completely took that punishment upon his shoulders and then freely invites you inside Father, the difference between the church and the world, and I wish this wasn't true, but the difference between the church and the world is not that we are always loving, that we are always good, that we are always faithful, that we are always obedient. We can't look at ourselves and find a lack of the same problems that mar the relationships of the world. 
we do find a relationship with you. We do find the seeds of restoration. We do find the power of the Spirit to walk in the ways of righteousness. And we do find a destiny that's been promised to us that every tear will be wiped away, that every battle will be overcome, that every sin will be conquered. And I pray, Lord, that we would take full advantage of the relationship you've given us with you and with one another, and that it would be manifested affectionately and effectively with much effort and sacrifice because every investment we make in the family of God is an internal investment. And I pray as well, Lord, that we would recognize the reality that Paul sees that there is a boundary and that boundary cuts not merely through families, but it cuts through the pews of our church. There is an inside and an outside. And it's hard, it's difficult to swallow that because it's serious, but it's so much better than just having an outside with no inside. I pray that you would teach us, Lord, that the opposite of oneness in the church is not oneness with everybody, it's nonness. It's nothing. Nothing but this self-oriented curvitas n, curved in on ourselves, self-focused, each trying to be our own God, that destroys and devastates relationship and hinders unity. And I ask God that we would <coughs> we would compel them to come in. That we would go out into the highways and byways as your servants. That we would have no entry exam, no prerequisites, that we wouldn't put any barrier in front of people, that we would say, here is the door, and all you need to walk through, here is the invitation. Just show up to the wedding. And that as people walk through those doors, we would recognize they've transitioned, not just from enemies of God to the family of God, but they've become our siblings. So we owe them our love. We have something to gain from them. They're grafted into the body of Christ. They're part of our eternal destiny. Thank you for the letter that you wrote through your Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. I pray that these truths here of love and the true boundaries of the church would be expressed in our church. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.